So how come you like chocolate so much? I'm a human being. <laughs> Why be alive if you can't have chocolate? I am Scott Stewart. And I'm Carol Yu. Welcome to episode 15 of This Is You podcast. <laughs> The voice you first heard is special guest Phil Rosenthal. He is the creator and host of Somebody Feed Phil, a hit series on Netflix in which he explores his love of food and travel through his humorous and childlike wide-eyed wonder. Phil provides an exclusive sneak peek into season three of his hit Netflix show. Then he inspires us with stories of his successes and failures in life and entertainment. He invigorates us with advice about maintaining humor in everyday life. And of course, we talk about male modeling and his newly adopted great Pyrenees puppy, Murray. After we talk to Phil, we have a new segment, Seven Reasons Why You Should Eat Chocolate. Phil studied theater at Hofstra University on Long Island. He worked as an actor, a writer, and a director in New York until he moved to Los Angeles in 1989. After writing for such series as Down the Shore and Coach, in 1995, he created the hit comedy, Everybody Loves Raymond. He was nominated for over 70 Emmy Awards, winning 15, including the 2003 and 2005 Awards for Best Comedy Series. He has also won the 2002 Writers Guild Award for Excellence in Television Writing and the Peabody Award for the 9-11 Telethon America, a tribute to heroes. His first food travel series, I'll Have What Phil's Having, aired on PBS in 2015, for which he received a James Beard Award in 2016. His most recent series, Somebody Feed Phil, follows his true love of bringing family and food and travel to the table. In his own words, here's what I've learned. Food is what connects us and laughs are the cement. Welcome, Phil. Hi. Hey, this is Scott. And Carol. Hello. Hello. Okay, we've got a first question here for you, Phil. We're really excited that you're on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. We were re-watching your Lisbon episode while you were live tweeting. Yes. Which was great, by the way. Was it all right compared to other people who do this thing? Because I'm new. No, you did a great job. It was excellent. Thanks. So during the process of that, Dara, our daughter, comes into the room and says, Damn, his eyes are piercing. There's a lot of talk online that you're a handsome Ryan Gosling. Question, have you thought of giving it all up for the exciting world of male modeling? (laughs) I think about it every day. You know, I I get up, I look in the mirror and I go, you are wasting your time being (laughs) hidden from the world. You should really share this gift with the people. (laughs) And if my wife and daughter were hearing this now, they would either be laughing as hard as they could or throwing up. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, having met so many talented and really skilled chefs, what did you see as being a common trait among them? They're all artists. They're all, what I, what I realized is that, you know, I'm a writer and I realized if something tastes delicious, if, you're, if you go to a restaurant and you order something from the menu and it and it's fantastic and innovative and wonderful. First of all, it's a work of art. But more than that, it's great writing. Writing a recipe is writing. Putting two ingredients that 
you would never think of together and that go together so well that it becomes this delicious creation that is writing. And I realized that all great chefs are great writers. Right. That's so true. That's one of the things I really like about you is you have this amazing way of seeing the world differently that we've all seen so many hundreds of thousands of times. And you just add a whole new element and a whole new vision to things. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I think we all have this perspective. I always tell young writers that your art form, your writing, your way of contributing to the world is everything that you have experienced filtered through the way you think. That is what we have to offer. It's what you each have to offer. It's what everyone listening individually has to offer. Your life experience filtered through the way you think. And that makes us all unique. Yeah, absolutely. To me, one of the most beautiful things about your show, besides the cinematography on Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, is your childlike wonder and curiosity. It's so pure. How have you been able to maintain that purity throughout your life? Uh, I guess that's a natural curiosity and an appreciation for how lucky I am to get to do this. I, and, and that informs everything I try to do. I try to, and, and that's what travel does for you, because everything then is new to you. Every time you travel, there's something to discover. And, and what I love most about travel is not just the travel for travel's sake, but when you come home, your perspective has changed. And I always use this as an example. The first time I went, to Europe. I was 23 years old and I was in Paris, France. And I was walking down the street and I was marveling at how beautiful the street was. Look at the trees just on this block. I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. And then I went home having been changed by the whole experience, the people I met, of course, and the food I ate and the scenery of Paris and how gorgeous it was. And I went home to my apartment in Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan which is nothing like Paris, but I walked down the street and for the first time I noticed those trees. Look at this. We have beautiful trees too. They're different, but they're also beautiful. So what travel does is it awakens your senses to the world around you no matter where you are after having seen something to compare your life to, right? Mm -hmm. That's different from yours. Yeah, exactly. It's very easy when you're in a situation all the time in your life, you start to overlook things. You start to, un you don't appreciate the beautiful things that are around you and you start to uh, become ungrateful or not ungrateful, but you just don't become grateful for the things that are around you. We take life for granted. That's the lesson of the great Thornton Wilder play, Our Town, which I recommend everybody seeing at least once in their life or, or reading if you can't do that, Our Town. It's about this very thing, the mundane things in our life that we take for granted mm -hmm. and how we don't know that how valuable and thrilling they are until they're taken away. And we're all experiencing this right now. And it will be over. People are going to have a newfound appreciation for life. Yeah, it's it's definitely been eye-opening staying at home. It gives us a lot of time to really reflect upon all of our relationships, on ourselves. And I've really found that that 
has been time, which has been, you know, we feel that it's been unfortunate that this is happening throughout the world, the coronavirus, but it really has given us a lot of time to really reflect and look inside. We have to look at what we can take away from this, what, what the good part can be. Because first of mm-hmm. all, it's horrific, the, the, the sickness, the death, the, the horrible loss of loved ones. It, it's just unimaginable. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. For those of us who aren't experiencing that, however, there is a takeaway that can be positive in your life, and that is appreciation and never taking anything for granted again. Now, I know human nature, we're going to feel that for about two days, and Mm -hmm. we'll be back to the way we are. But we have to remember to try to hold on to this. And the thing you're talking about the show that you seem to like is the fact that I have held on to this. Now, it's not hard to do if you're lucky enough to be me in these situations. <laughs> but even without the show, I've lived long enough to know that that is the secret of life. Gratitude, appreciation, and a sense of curiosity and wonder. That's the secret. So is there anything that you do in regards to those things? Gratitude? Do you keep gratitude journals? Or how do you keep that foremost in who you are? Well, I'm not Superman. I, I get depressed like everybody else. I, I don't appreciate things all the time. This is something as I'm saying it to you, I'm wanting to remember myself. And it takes a little effort. It takes a little bit of, you know, concentration. I can't say that that I practice any journal keeping or anything like that. I try to meditate when I can. Before we got the puppy, I was meditating <laughs> every morning. But now with the puppy, the puppy is my meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, raising a puppy takes your full, full attention. It's like having a baby. So there's mm-hmm. not a lot of time to meditate. But just going for a walk with the dog around my block, I look at the flowers. I look at the trees. I look at the puppy, I look at other people who are six feet away from me on the other side of the street, and I am grateful. I am grateful, number one, to be alive and still healthy, and and I'm grateful for everything in my life, and when you have that, the world is better. It's just that simple. Well, our dog, Momo, has a question for Murray. Yes. What are your favorite kitchen droppings? (laughs) You mean the ones that Murray isn't leaving us himself? The 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 any any speck of food. You know what we found because the puppy's teething. He's about he's going to be fourteen weeks tomorrow, and so he's like he's like jaws coming at us, literally leaping at us with with jaws snapping. Like he's got his teeth are so you know it must hurt to be teething, right? Mm. We asked a, a trainer. They said you need frozen marrow, bone marrow, bones. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how easy that's going to be to get today. No, we're not going to the supermarket looking for this. But we found some uh, carrot sticks in the fridge and those are cold. Mm. And so we gave him one today to try. And that seems to have worked. It seems to have, you know, gotten him occupied. He likes the carrot. You never know what's going to work. And sometimes it works for 10 minutes and then it'll never work again with the dog, right? But for now, the carrot stick is the right. big find of the day. <laughs> that's a that's a good... Uh 
good tip for teething dogs. On the topic of food, if you were a type of food, what type of food would you be? Chocolate. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> We've seen you uh, dig into uh, a lot of your share of chocolate on the show. I'm a chocolate freak. I, I, I say if it's not chocolate, it's not dessert. How do you find local food experts in the places that you go to? Oh, that's pretty easy now. Uh, first of all, I've got a wonderful team, the same production team that did Mr. Bourdain's shows. So they have boots on the ground in, in every country on earth. So they know the the hot spots in, in each city. They know the people in each city. Some of them they've used before when Mr. Bourdain was doing his shows. And sometimes we use the same people, but everyone has access to experts on their phone. You can mm -hmm. Google best food tour of Rome. Mm -hmm. Right, and you're going to find experts, and then you can find the the reviews that this person got, and the, the and read something about them. There's many, many, you know, the whole world's available to us now on our phones and on the internet. So it's easy. You could do your own research. Uh, you know, half the research are these experts that we use, and the other half of the research is just me googling stuff and finding mm -hmm. out where's the best place to eat in each city. We cross our references and, and we, we, we talk to the people. And then always we leave room in each city, in each schedule for serendipity. There might be a place we're going for uh, khao soy in Thailand and someone will say, that's not the best khao soy. This is the best khao soy. You got to go here. And sometimes we'll try it if we have time. And sure enough, that's the part that makes it in the show. That's what happened in Lisbon with uh, ice cream and pizza and sausages, right? Completely serendipitous. It's one of my favorite scenes ever because you could tell it was completely spontaneous. Now, not every spontaneous thing works out as great as that one did. Like I didn't mm -hmm. know that wonderful character Alessandro was going to pop in to the scene, but look what happened. I just have a question. I want to sort of um, get into your earlier life. From your time with Q and Curtin, your high school's drama club, Wow! what is one of your favorite memories that stands out above the rest? Uh, uh, being in, in, in Q and Curtin at Clarkstown High School North? Yep. I'll tell you, I was a, a very short and uh, skinny kid, and I was somewhat of a nerd and an outcast, I felt, in regular school. I didn't have many friends. I was even picked on. And having this theater group, you know, we, we all have this, this place where this extracurricular activity feels like where you belong. And it's an indescribable joy to fit in there and to realize that, oh, people are laughing at things that I say or the way I do things. And this is a great outlet for expression. And it's so much fun to have other kids who not only aren't hitting you, but they like you. Mm -hmm. You're going to do this show together. And once you do that, once you make something, whether it be sports or theater or art class or the chess club, once you fit in with a group, that's everything. And that to me was the key. It was the friendships and the fun we had in making something that worked. Was, was wonderful. So, so it gave me a direction in life. I owe everything to that. Definitely. You found your people. Exactly. And it was mm -hmm. fun. And it felt like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. 
was to try to be funny. Right. That ties into actually my next question. With your book, You're Lucky, You're Funny, How Life Becomes a Sitcom, growing up, which three stand-up comics influenced your sense of humor the most? And did you ever do stand-up? A great question. I'm going to say that I loved everyone that I ever watched on TV who was funny. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Bill Cosby, Don Rickles, Jack Benny, Jackie Gleason and Art Carney on The Honeymooners. I mean, I could go on and on, but these are the first ones that are coming to mind. And then the great writers like Norman Lear and Carl Reiner and The Sid Caesar Show, that changed my life when I saw clips from your show of shows and all the writers who worked on that and Larry Gelbart and Neil Simon, of course. These were right. my heroes. And and I just, uh, I wanted to emulate them and I wanted to be like them. And really, everyone that I saw, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Cheech and Chong, I had every comedy record that was made. And I would listen to them over and over and over and learn them. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and they had this show, The Sunday Night Funnies, and I think it was on from like 9 to 11. Yeah. And my brother and I, we would go to bed. We had to be in bed by, at that time, like 8 o'clock. We'd kill an hour in bed. And then from 9 to 11, we would listen to all those comedians because we didn't really have money at the time when we were kids. You know, we had paper routes or something. Right. And we just got to listen to all this comedy. We got so excited for Sunday night just to lie in bed for two hours. And you just heard all these comedians, all this different material. And it was fantastic. I think it really, really shaped my sense of humor anyway. That's great. Uh, you know, I would tell people to, it's all out there. It's all accessible. If you like comedy, there's there's an entire world that maybe came before you that's well worth knowing. Right. Uh, you know, I try to tell my kids that, you know, life didn't begin just as you were born. There's a whole world before you, and <laughs> it's worth checking out. Right. I do want to know if you've ever done stand-up. I tried it once when I was 19 at a local club that had a, a, a open mic night. So there would be a trumpet player and then a saxophone player and then... I got up and did jokes, and it was very odd. It went okay, I think, but I was so nervous, and I was so used to being in plays and having an audience sit there and watch and respectfully you know, engage that being in this bar, in this club, where a few tables in the front, they were there to see the show, but the rest of the bar behind them was very noisy and glasses clinking and stuff, and it was so <laughs> distracting. It was distracting to me, let alone the people <laughs> sitting there, and I, I had a choice to make. Do I want to get used to this, or should I stick to my uh, plays that I'm doing? This was in high school, in college. And I decided to stick to my theater stuff and not pursue that anymore because it was so uh, nerve-wracking. It was really, I have the utmost respect for comedians who can, who can do this and overcome all the obstacles and the, the bravery that they have to do it every night. Well, you definitely have chosen an amazing path and we love to watch you. So what can we expect from season three oh. of Somebody Feed Phil, which returns this May on Netflix? That's right. Uh, there's going to be a few more American cities this time because, uh, first of all, I realized that a lot of people can't afford to travel overseas. But more importantly, I believe you can travel in your own town. I believe that you can find wonderful foods that you never had before, ethnic restaurants, all kinds of 
people from other country who have things to share with you. And the cuisine is the perfect place to start. You're literally taking in that culture. So it's like traveling without leaving your town. And uh, that's a wonderful way to start. And America is great because of all the immigrants that built this place and, and live in this place. And it's well worth exploring American cities. So we have a few more of those this season uh, for people. That's amazing. We're super excited for that. Yeah, me too. Me too. We still go far away. I can't, I'm not allowed to tell you yet where we go. Netflix likes to keep that a surprise, but there's going to be five episodes coming in May and then another five uh, that we've already shot that'll be released uh, further down the road. Would you say that would be in, in this year? That would be season four. I'm, I'm guessing, if I had to guess, it would be the fall or early winter. Excellent. Looking forward to that. That's great. I have a question here for you. What drink was invented at Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? The blank blank was invented as an ice cream drink. Egg cream? No, root beer float? I can give you a hint if you want. Okay. It was on the Dublin episode when you were pouring Guinness beer. You had a little story to tell. Oh, the pink squirrel. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Tell the people what's in that because no one's going to want it after they hear it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It has three quarters of an ounce of creme de nail, which is an almond taste, and it gives it like a pink color, then three quarters of an ounce of white creme de cacao, and then an ounce and a half of heavy cream. And it was popular from the 1940s to the 1970s. I mean, I've worked in restaurants and bars my whole life, and I'd never heard of that drink before. I swear to you, the very first, my very first moment as a (laughs) bartender, a woman asked me for that drink. That was the very first order that I was lucky enough to take as a bartender. And I had no idea. And I looked in my Mr. Boston, remember Mr. Boston guide? Exactly. How to make drinks. And I, I looked under P for pink. I looked under S for squirrel. I looked under R for rodent drinks. I couldn't find this drink. And and I went back to the lady. I said, and, and people were clamoring at the bar for drinks, you know, and I was, it was hectic and crazy and I was petrified. And I said, uh, excuse me, ma'am, would you do me a favor and order something else? I have no idea how to make a pink squirrel. And she had mercy on me and, and took a gin and tonic, which is very easy to me. Yeah, I, I love that story. That was great. Phil, what is something that you've failed at? What was a personally challenging time in your life? And how did you maintain your humor? Wow. Uh, There are times when I don't maintain my humor. Uh, There are frustrating times in life. And I'm like everybody else. I get mad. I get sad. I get, you know, I yell at the wrong person (laughs) because I'm frustrated. Uh, You know, I've had professional failures where I believed in a show that I wanted to do and it didn't work and it and and I got so angry at the at the system you know the network or the studio or collaborators and you just get you know who's the cynic who said uh, the problem with the world is other people right <laughs> right I've had those moments I guess all I can say is you're going to go through those moments and then if you're smart you forget about them and say Next, yeah, what's next? Excellent. Let's move on. What are you going to do? Dwell about? I mean, I I worked my very one of my very first successes turned into a failure because of some terrible behind the scenes uh, conflicts with the the people who I created a, a theatrical show with in New York. It was the very first success that we ever had, and it was a big off Broadway smash. 
And then I noticed they were firing the people who were getting attention, the center of the group. They wanted to hang on to their to to the attention for themselves. And so they started firing people who they didn't either personally like or they felt were was getting too much notice. And I might have fallen into both categories. <laughs> I was fired from the very show I helped create. And I thought that at the time, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I was suddenly not only cut out of this artistic high point that I helped to make, this thing that I loved, but I was out of a job. And I was completely, you know, alone, destitute at, at uh, 27 years old. I didn't know what I would do. So, of course, like everything else, uh, people, I'm sure, have these stories. The worst thing that ever happened to me, of course, turned into the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? Because it forced me to write something else. I already showed I, I could write a little bit, and I wrote a screenplay with another friend of mine, and we sold that screenplay. And that was my, that was my entree to Hollywood, really. And, and then I, I found a writing partner in Los Angeles, and I started writing spec scripts. You know what spec scripts are, right? Yeah. Where you write for no money on speculation. You're just writing, and then you're sending your script around. So it's not for money. That's what a spec script is. You're writing it on speculation that you hope you will get something. It's like an audition if you're an actor. It's your script that proves that maybe you can write. And we wrote things and, and you know, it took a while, but then we got hired on a sitcom and that, that was the beginning. But if I had stayed in that play, none of that would have happened. And that sitcom that you were just referring to, was that Coach? No, that was already three or four sitcoms in. Oh, wow. The first few that we worked on, you never heard of. But you just kept going. You, you knew like that was enough to give you guys inspiration or you knew you had something there. It was just a matter of honing it, keeping it in the trenches and moving forward. Listen, most things fail, right? Especially in show business. Most things fail and you have to understand that. If you're an actor and you audition, you might have hundreds of auditions before you get that one part. Yeah, exactly. It's getting kind of crazy now. I had a, I do acting also, and I had an audition for a Budweiser commercial the other day. So I spent a bunch of time putting it together. It was because of the coronavirus, it, it was going to be all done online. Got it all put together, spent a bunch of time, uploaded it to the casting agency, and then noticed they didn't even download the file. There's just too many people. So I, I totally relate to what you're saying on that. Listen, it's the most sought after job in the world. And anyone, anyone, literally anyone can say, I'm an actor or I'm a writer, right? Right. And they do. And so the competition is fierce. When it hits, it's almost like winning the lottery. You know, it just takes you out of that restaurant bar job and it propels you into some sort of state of now I actually have money and I, I can do things that I've been struggling through all these years. Absolutely. Tell us about your 2016 James Beard Award. You were the winner for television program On Location. That was for the, the precursor to Somebody Feed Phil. That was called I'll Have What Phil's Having. It's the same show. It was just done for PBS with a different name. And we did six of those. And we won the James Beard Award for uh, Food and Travel Show On Location. So that was, you know, spectacular. I felt as happy about that as winning uh, the Emmy Awards for <laughs> Everybody Loves Raymond because this isn't really my field. And so I was so honored to, to be chosen 
for that. I was th- I was just thrilled. I was thrilled because it really is, you know, the the somebody feed Phil show. I'll have what Phil's having. These are kind of the culminations of everything I've learned in life about how to make a show. It's just now in the service of everything I love about life, meaning the shows about family, friends, food, travel, and laughs, which just happen to be my favorite things in the world. Yeah, Carol and I actually, we came across that on PBS a while back, and that's what got us, I think, excited and and put you on our radar. You can see the natural progression from that uh, series into your Netflix series. It just seems like you've really honed it down. It's interesting because Carol and I were rewatching some episodes just for this interview. We had thought how it was structured. There, There seems like there's definitely structure in your show. Yeah. I guess that just comes from you pulling out a structural system that has worked in the past. You've been doing a hit show and then you've just learned so much from that and now you've transitioned it into the Netflix show. Well, thanks. Uh, I always thought that the difference was now we have a, a little bigger budget. So we got a theme song that I'm in love with and uh, the cameras are a little better. That's about it. Hopefully, the more you do anything, you, you hopefully get better at it. So I, I try to do that. But uh, I think it's the same show, don't you? We do. I do. I think it is. I, I also love that theme song. Uh, we were watching it last night. And what we like is it seems to have a tie back to Everybody Loves Raymond in terms right. of it has music that has a sitcom kind of feel. It's exactly very upbeat. Right. It's happy. You're walking up the hill. It's <laughs> it's just a very joyous song. Lake Street Dive, everybody. I want people to know that group because they're a tremendous group and all their music is available online, even uh, to download. And, and there's obviously CDs and stuff to buy, but everybody downloads music now. So look for Lake Street Dive. All their albums are fantastic. I, I loved it. Should I do some more of those, you think? Live tweeting? Oh, yeah, definitely. That was really fun. The Instagram live after was was really, really awesome that you brought in special guests. It was great. Yeah. Just from uh, Scott's point of view here, Phil, what I really liked about the live tweeting was I liked how you'd give like extra information about the people. Yeah. Because when I'm watching your show, sometimes I'm going, you know, like, who's this guy married to or what did he do before? Ah. Um, you know, you ask people about where they come from and it's great because you just add that extra dimension to it. So it's it's the live tweeting is great. Okay, great. Thank you. That's helpful. That's a helpful note to look for now when I, because what you do is you kind of, you can't, if you try to write as you're watching, everything comes too fast and you're trying to look at people's comments at the same time and watch the show and do that. So you have to watch the show in advance, write down Mm. some thoughts and kind of store them in the drafts section of Twitter and have those ready to go so that you can hit send at the right moments in the show. And then, uh, maybe add stuff as you think of it or you get a comment. Does that make sense? Definitely. You've got homework. Yes, it's homework. Yes. But (laughs) what else do I have to do? I'm here in the house. Exactly. Um, Next question is, who is someone that you would love to have a meal with? What would you eat and where would it be? That's a great question. I'm so lucky because I've had incredible experiences, as you can see. Like I, I, I went to uh, Modena in the Venice episode, and and uh, I met arguably the world's greatest chef, Massimo Bottura. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite things I've ever done is he and his crew came for some charity event here in Los Angeles, and they had a night off. And I got to have dinner with them, and they wanted me to pick the place. And I took Massimo Bottura to a Korean hot dog place on mm. Western Avenue 
And what you do is you order these hot dogs and they're wild. They've got kimchi on them and they're coated in cheese, some of them, and they've got bacon wrapped. You know, it's like a, a whole mishmash of every all Los Angeles culture in all these hot dogs. And we got all of them to share with the his staff from Osteria Francescana, the best restaurant in the world. And then you go to this dive bar where the bartender has a big dog next to him behind the bar. And it's just the, you know, the most down to earth bar <laughs> bordering on dirty as, as you could get. And he loved it. He loved it. And I loved it because he loved it. And it was just one of the great experiences. So I've had this wonderful, you know, life afforded to me now. Uh, so there really isn't, I can't think of an experience that I must have because I've had so many and I'm so grateful for what I've had. Whatever comes, comes. Are there people that I love and want to have dinner with? Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big Springsteen fan, but I almost feel like if I had dinner with Bruce Springsteen, it, it, it would almost be too real. It would almost be like, it's not going to be what I want it to be, which is now we're best friends. He has a lot of dinners with a lot of people. He's Bruce Springsteen. So <laughs> as great as it would be, it wouldn't be as great even as I want it to be. I almost want my hero to stay my absolute hero. Does that make sense? It does. I think definitely when you have someone in your mind as your hero, your idol, then when you actually meet them, it it brings them down to a level that maybe doesn't make them an idol anymore, but there's some humanity to it. So there may be good in that too. Right. You know what? This is Scott here, and I got to disagree with both of you guys. Yeah. When I was uh, 18, I lived in Toronto, Canada. Mork and Mindy was the number one TV show. Rob Williams was my hero. Yeah. I convinced my friends one summer to come to Los Angeles, and I actually met Robin Williams, and it was everything that I thought it to be. So I, I didn't have dinner with him, obviously. It was just a few moments of his time in the parking lot, but I, it really inspired me for many years to come. Uh, he was a marvelous guy, and I have had dinner with him. And I can tell you that it's wonderful. And I have met my heroes, and I love meeting my heroes. But there are some that, I don't know, like someone like Bruce Springsteen is someone who I have met, and it's been wonderful. I've met him actually a few times now. But to sit and just have dinner, that's a special, intimate thing, right? It's time, right. Mm -hmm. and you're not getting Bruce Springsteen with the with the guitar who's making the entire stadium rock you know for 4 hours you're getting a guy who might be <laughs> tired and he might be <laughs> it's almost like I don't I don't need to see uh that guy <laughs> does that make sense yeah absolutely i i know what you mean now like now that you've pointed it out that that makes a lot of sense but i've loved i i can honestly say that 99% of the time that i've met my heroes it's been beyond what i expected because they've been so nice and so wonderful and i have become friends with certain people like norman lear and and uh, carl reiner they're like family now i've known them for now 20 years they're inspiring and wonderful, and I'm, ne I'm never going to say, don't meet your heroes. I say, meet your heroes every chance you can get. Uh, it's just this dinner question. Who, who do I want to have dinner with? I'm very happy having dinner with my friends and my family. I love that. I love being with my, you know, like the Raymond Riders when, I, when we go out, you know, once or twice a year still after 25 years, we still get together. 
And uh, that's one of the joys of my life, to have those kind of old army buddies, right? Yeah, that you were in the trenches with for all that time. That's right. What do you think your unique skill is that has helped you become successful? Uh, I'm going to say it's the most underrated trait in human beings, and that is a sense of humor. That's it. That is, that's, that's everything to me. I think it, the sense of humor is so important. It's what makes life livable. It, it's what attracts us to other human beings. A similar sense of humor or an appreciation for that person's sense of humor, even if it's not the same sense of humor. I think it's who we choose to be friends with is based on that. And I even will go f- this far. It's who we marry. If you don't have an appreciation for your spouse's sense of humor, you're in trouble. We're, we're, we're looking at each other and laughing because, well, go ahead. You, you can say I, I have to explain a lot of my jokes to Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but she still appreciates your sense of humor. You wouldn't be together if you didn't. Correct. <laughs> and you appreciate hers. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, sometimes I, she goes, uh, that's funny. Why aren't you laughing at that? That's great. That's when I'm trying to tell him a joke and he won't laugh at it. I'm like, no, I will, if I, because I'm, I'm typically a much more serious person than Scott. Scott is a comedian. And I'll tell a joke, which I think is really funny. And then he'll just go, oh, okay. And my heart sinks. <laughs> <laughs> he loves the other jokes. <laughs> he loves that yes. you're funny without maybe knowing that you're funny. Right. Right. How long have you been married? Uh, <laughs> we always get this mixed yeah. up. Um, 2011 like or 12? Nine years. Oh, you're newlyweds. Uh, you know what's happening to me next week? 30 years of marriage. Wow. Congratulations. You know what that anniversary is called? The enough already. <laughs> <laughs> what is a question that I should have asked you, but I didn't? What am I having for lunch? What are you having for lunch? I'm going to have a tuna fish sandwich with tomato on nice bread. And I'm going to be as happy with that sandwich, as I am with a four-star French meal, because the tuna mm. is so good, this canned tuna that I found, that I love so much, and it just makes it. That's it. So you have to give me the tip, because Scott loves tuna. What What is the canned tuna that you love so much? Uh, I'm only going to say this uh, for broadcast, because I want them to send me a case of this tuna. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Ortiz. I believe it's from Spain. And you know what ventresca means? No, what does that mean? It means the belly. So you're just getting Uh like these these beautiful fillets almost of of tuna. It's not like mushed up tuna fish. This is tuna packed in oil. And it's so good that you just have to take it out of the can, put it on your bread, maybe a little salt and whatever, if you like dill or herbs, the Provence on it, whatever you like uh, flavoring on it, but it doesn't need anything but a little salt. Slice a tomato, maybe a piece of lettuce on this bread. I'm telling you, one of the world's great sandwiches, and even a monkey like me can make this sandwich and not ruin it. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Yes. You saw the canned fish in the, in the Lisbon episode, right? We did. We did. Tuna was part of that too. And, you know, people think... There's a lot of people who don't like fish anyway, right? But then they think canned fish, how good can that be? Very, very good is the answer. Very, very good. It just has to be the right one. 
Well, Phil, we're just basically coming to the end of the podcast here. And we just wanted to say it was such a joy to interview you. It was very much like how when I met Robin Williams, there was an excitement to it and you delivered in every capacity. Is there places or things or websites or Instagram accounts that you want to give a shout out? We can put them in the show notes, but is there something specifically you want people to know about? Uh, let's see. There's Phil.Rosenthal. That's my Instagram, Phil Rosenthal on Twitter. Uh, I think there's official Phil Rosenthal on Facebook and there's uh, the YouTube channel, Phil Rosenthal World. So the, you'll see on that, that's uh, we think that's special because there are bonus scenes from the show on the YouTube channel. I was wondering about that. Yeah, I was wondering how you got those extra cuts. That's I, I've been watching that also. They were shot for the show and we just didn't have time in the show to put them in, but they're perfectly good and perfectly funny and perfectly uh, informative. They are, definitely. And they have a, um, they're not as slickly produced, but that gives them a real um, character and they're nice because it's more personal. That's right. So I just wanted to tell you, uh, my daughter, Dara, put together a cookie and muffin delivery. Oh my goodness. She's delivering oatmeal toffee cookies, spelt chocolate chip and orange cranberry shortbread, and also some really delicious roasted banana bread muffins. And so we would love to drop off <gasps> a box of all of this. Ooh for thank you. Wow. Yeah. So we can talk offline um, about that and how we could get that to you. I'm excited. This was the best podcast <laughs> ever. Oh, thank you so much. That's <laughs> awesome. We really appreciated talking to you. Me too. Thanks, Phil. And here's our new segment, seven reasons why you should eat chocolate. You know, there are a lot of reasons you should eat chocolate, but really when doctors talk about this, it's specifically dark chocolate. No need to feel guilty about having that piece of dark chocolate every day. Because it's loaded with nutrients, rich in antioxidants, can reduce inflammation, potentially lower blood pressure, and many other reasons. Just make sure you're having a 70 to 85% cocoa bar. Just a disclaimer, we are not doctors, but check with your doctor as to whether chocolate can fit into your diet. Reason number one, chocolate wins over blueberries. A lot of food is tested for antioxidants. People always talk about blueberries scoring really high in antioxidants. But did you know cocoa beans score even higher? Reason number two, keep your lipids in line. Your lips? No, Carol, your lipids. If you eat dark chocolate, it can really help with risk factors for heart disease. There have been studies where cocoa powder was found to really decrease bad cholesterol in men. Reason number three, chocolate is a totally epic superfood. Our bodies need a lot of different minerals. In chocolate, there's copper, iron, magnesium, selenium, manganese, potassium, phosphorus, and zinc. Chocolate will make you a superhero. Reason number four, chocolate helps your sex life. Woohoo! Enough said. Reason number five, chocolate helps you live longer. There was a study of 470 elderly men where it showed that cocoa reduced the risk of death from heart disease by a crazy 50% over a 15-year period. Reason number six, chocolate makes you smarter. One study showed that eating cocoa for five days improves the blood flow to your brain. Also, cocoa has caffeine in it, which can help you wake up. Now, if you combine coffee and cocoa, you will be woke. Reason number seven, chocolate can be used as an SPF at the beach. 
Studies show that the falvinols from cocoa can improve blood flow to the skin and protect it from sun damage. So what's the bottom line? Chocolate can turn you into a superhuman, but you have to remember some special things. First, you only need a square or two. You don't need all the calories. And remember to eat high-quality chocolate with 70% or higher cocoa content. Dark chocolates have smaller amounts of sugar. Plus, you get to eat something totally tasty that has proven health benefits. And that's why you should eat chocolate. Thank you to Phil of Somebody Feed Phil again for your time and infectious positivity. We were so honored and appreciative that you gave us the gift of your presence and your insight. I will always refer back to this episode whenever I need a moment of inspiration and centering to keep my spirits up. Thank you so much for that. We mentioned that we were dropping off some cookies to Phil. After he received them, he forwarded a photo of himself with the cookies and told us the cookies are phenomenal. We are so glad we could bring a little love to Phil and his family because we definitely felt that love when we spoke with him. We'd love to hear your feedback on our podcast. Call us at the This Is You hotline at 562-291-6037. We're always looking to improve and would love any constructive criticism and, of course, all the constructive compliments that you want to give, too. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about or any suggestions of guests, too. We all want to belong to a community and connect, and we want to offer up our ears and our hearts to you. Our home base is www.thisisyou.com. Instagram is at thisisyouofficial. And last but not least, our Facebook is thisisyouvipcommunity. That's it for today. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Thank you.